Good morning, everyone. Breaking my heart when I see you in sorrow. You feel with despair all the time. No, but tomorrow, fearing the future ahead, so lost in confusion. I'll seem so lost to you now, but there's a solution. Don't be Son for you and I Pour out your troubles and don't worry Tell him what you need and give him thanks Then the peace of God beyond human confession Will guide your hearts and your mind from Satan's deception Obeying the word of the sun and living a life that's new. So celebrate, don't hesitate, he's waiting to hear from you. Any time, any day, that's what I say. Yeah, pray to your Father who's in heaven. The one who gave his son for you and I. Such a crime You have been loved And loved Will be for the rest of time Why live in fear Every day When your father is on your side The death of his son Showed his love His loving arms are now open wide Run to now He'll help you somehow Oh pray to your father who's in heaven the one who gave his son for you and I pour out your troubles and don't worry tell him what you need and give him Good morning, and if you could turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, I'll be right back. Let me just hang up the guitar. I'll be right with you.
Alrighty, I'm back. And uh, if, again, if you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And we're continuing our study of Ephesians, and this will be our 120th hour in Ephesians. We'll be looking at, uh, start to uh, look at, uh, it'll be the first of three hours in Ephesians 2.18. Again, what determines how long I'm in a passage is the content. And so today we'll be looking at the first part of the verse, which uh, teaches us that Jewish and Gentile Christians experience access to the presence of the Father, which Quite interesting. Um, I'm actually just finishing off and actually ready to put the lessons together. I've written, uh, did my exegesis and exposition, and uh, in Ephesians 3:12, which echoes Ephesians 2:18, they use the same language, uh, like uh, prosagoge, access. And uh, so, in, in the presence of the Father is implied in verse 12 of chapter 3, as it's uh, in, in this verse here, Ephesians 2:18. So they they sound they're very echo, uh, they echo. So, yeah, one has more than some. Ephesians 3.12 varies a little bit, obviously, from Ephesians 2.18 if you read it, but they, they pretty much echo each other. They have the basics of they have access to the presence of the Father because of our faith in Jesus at justification and our union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit, which actually puts us in the presence of the Father because of our identification with Christ in His session, which we studied on, uh, in Ephesians 2.6, if you recall, early in the chapter. So, uh, great, great book, great study. And so uh, without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overactive sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Now, we main that, maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us. Uh, according to 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, uh, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins with the result that He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing, and we have to maintain that fellowship uh, by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures, which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit in Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do it. First Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you, Father, for another day to study your word. We thank you for this uh, series in Ephesians, and we pray you would bless uh, what we've uh, accomplished thus, thus far in this uh, study and also what you will be doing for us in the future, whatever time you give me in the future, if any. And also today's class, I pray by the power of spirit that uh, each person in the audience, each one of your children in the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ, would uh, be able to receive their necessary spiritual nourishment today. We know your word says those man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth, Father. So I pray that each person will be spoken to as individuals in their own individual walk with you and also all of us as a corporate unit. I also pray that the Spirit would help them to learn, understand, to concentrate, to carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here this morning in order to make personal application so that they can continue to grow up spiritually and become more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. I also pray 
that you'd help me to be your instrument today. Help me to be humble and sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. Help me to deliver the full, your full counsel today with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so I can minister to your people and, and any unsaved that might be in the audience that are not yet Christians. And I thank you for them. And I pray that they'd be able to understand the gospel to, in order to make a decision to either accept or reject your son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, through the power of the Spirit. Help me understand it and understand the implications of it. And uh, we know that you desire all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. I also pray you'll help uh, I pray for the, uh, the technology. Thank you for the technology. People taking advantage of it, whether it's live through streaming you uh, video by YouTube or through the recordings at a later date through our websites. I pray, Father, that there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload of these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you give it to us so graciously. And I pray you protect them from the evil one as you've done, and also use them mightily uh, as well. And um, and I just uh, thank you, Father, for uh, Titus's work with the website, uh, Winston.org, and I just thank you, Father, for his hard work over the years. And, uh, and I just uh, lift up him and his family at this time, too. And uh, uh, I also pray, Father, for, uh, again, that uh, this class would bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, ultimately. And we just thank you for the great honor and privilege to study your word and the gift of the Spirit helps, it, helps us to understand and uh, make application and, and produces the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the character of your son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. So, Father, we pray for this in our service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. All right, if you haven't turned there already, please do. We'll go Ephesians 2, 1. And we're going to read, as we've been doing, the whole chapter and then uh, in uh, the Net Bible. And then we're going to read the uh, whole chapter in my translation. And then we're going to start to look at verse 18. This will be the first of three hours uh, in, this particular, um, in this particular verse. And at, we're actually rapidly approaching the end of the book. Or you might be saying we're not going too rapidly. But um, I like to take my time and I'm not rushing to anything. I, wanna, I don't want to... Uh, I mean, if you, there are other ministries that will go a lot quicker and stuff and give you a more summary thing, but we're digging deep into this in the scriptures and we're trying to um, understand each of the, one of these verses and also these verses in related to the, the whole book and in relation to the Bible. And so that's, uh, so we, uh, this is what uh, we've always tried to do here at Western Bible Ministry. So uh, let's see, at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from the Net Bible. And then we'll read from my translation before we really start digging into verse uh, Ephesians 2.18. So at Ephesians 2.1, it says, And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the spirit, that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope but without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one, 
and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility. When he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees, he did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you, who were far off, and peace to those who were near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, uh, just before we go uh, read my translation of this same chapter, uh, remember uh, this is a circular letter that was uh, written not only to the, the Christian community in the Roman in uh, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, but it's also uh, uh, de- its destination was actually for all the various uh, Christian communities throughout the various cities and towns in the Roman province of Asia. And it was addressed to Gentiles, as we read in verse 11, Gentile, members of the Gentile Christian community. Paul's the writer. He wrote this in approximately between 60 and 62 uh, AD during his first Roman imprisonment. And uh, he's, uh, this, uh, he was released from that Roman imprisonment. Uh, the purpose of this letter is to maintain unity experientially between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities through the practice of the command to love one another, John 13, 34 and 15, 12, and all that involves. And so uh, right now, we're in the section, verses 11 through 22, that are discussing the new humanity. And the new humanity is actually basically the headship of who, uh, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, the new human, he's the head of the new creation. And remember the, uh, the first Adam, Adam and his wife Eve, uh, they were originally to be ruling over the works of God's hands. Uh, we see that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And as we've been pointing out, with the fall, Satan usurped the authority of Adam and Eve in the garden because now he's the God of this world, according to what Paul says and 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And also what the Gospel of Luke says because Jesus was tempted by the devil in Luke 4 and he was uh, offered all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship the devil. Of course, Jesus emphatically rebuked him with the word of God. And uh, that would not have been a legitimate temptation unless he did, in fact, have that kind of authority over the world. First John 5.19, John says that the whole world is under his power and he deceives the entire world, Revelation chapter 12. So, Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, death, burial, uh, actually destroyed in in resurrection and session, the right hand of the Father, actually destroyed the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. It actually was the beginning of God restoring uh, the human race as rulers over the works of his hands, the, the planet Earth, and dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels. And so we see that uh, Christ, when he was seated at the right hand of the Father, he now received the kingdom, was predicted in Daniel 7, 13-14, the Son of Man passage going up to the Ancient of Days is a picture of the Father. And we see that the title deed of the earth is now going to be, uh, it's his. Jesus Christ has the title deed to planet earth, and he accomplished that through his, his death and resurrection and session the right hand of the Father. And so we see that title deed of the earth mentioned in Revelation 5. And when he, uh, no one in heaven or earth, earth or under the earth was able to, or worthy, to open this, the, uh, this seven-sealed uh, document, which is the title deed to planet earth, but only one, the Lamb of God, was. And so uh, he will, then we'll see he'll, he'll at, uh, during the, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, and in particular, 
uh, at the beginning of the uh, the last three and a half years of the 70th week, which is the Armageddon campaign where Antichrist will be dominating the earth. Uh, Jesus Christ will break the seven seal trumpet and bowl, uh, administer the seven seal trumpet and bowl judgments to elect angels upon a Christ rejecting world. And, uh, and the, the point of which is to eventually have uh, him come back with his church in a resurrection body and rewards, decorated with rewards, Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, tribulational martyrs and, and, and resurrection bodies, and elect angels to start the kingdom on earth. And so right now, the church age, which is inter, uh, an inter, interlocution, uh, it's uh, in between the end of the 69th week of Daniel and before the 70th week of Daniel, and we're in the times of the Gentiles, where Gentile powers will rule this earth and are, we see the, that uh, now, beginning of the day of Pentecost, in June of 33 AD, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the Spirit uh, was administered, uh, was given to those who trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior that were part of the Jewish race, like the apostles. At that moment, they received the baptism of the Spirit, forgiveness of sins, and they were identified with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because they're under his headship, and those events in Jesus' life actually provided them this so great salvation and sanctification. Now the Gentiles uh, were received the baptism of the Spirit as well, as, as we saw in the uh, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, his family, and, uh, believing in Jesus Christ. They received the baptism of the Spirit like the Jewish believers, uh, this was recognized uh, in the church and the first church council, Acts 15. So this is a new thing because what happened was as a result of the baptism and the spirit of justification, Gentile believers are, as we'll see in Genesis, uh, Revelation, uh, Ephesians, excuse me, uh, 3, 6. Uh, Gentile believers are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ and fellow partakers of the messianic promise because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit with Jewish believers. So they are uh, uh, fellow members, fellow, co uh, fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, and also fellow partakers of the Messianic promise with Jewish believers. And that was not known to Old Testament saints, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. It was a mystery not known to them. But it's now been revealed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and their teaching, which is now found in our Greek New Testament and our trans English translations. So that's incredible. Because with Gentiles were predicted to get saved. We, Paul mentions this in Revel, uh, Romans 15. But it was not known that they would be fellow heirs, fellow part, uh, members of the body of Christ, and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise through faith in Christ and the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, be, it was not known about that. And In other words, that mystery doctrine, which says that they're fellow uh, heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise, was uh, not known to Old Testament saints. And, it, and basically, it, it real it, it uh, revealed that Jewish, uh, Gentile believers are on the same footing as Jewish believers. That was never said to be the case uh, during uh, the age of Israel and the, uh, the Mosaic Law. But that's the case now. So you and I should be very happy. In fact, if you're a woman, I mean, Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Spirit and the Father have done more for women than in, has Helen Gurley Brown ever did. And Women's Live Movement has ever done. In fact, Women's Live Movement has done nothing for women, really. What we see here is Jesus and this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did something about that because if you read Galatians 3, 26 through 28, women are now saying, are, are on equal footing with men, whereas in the Old Testament times, that wasn't always the case. Uh, the man was always the royal, was the priest in the family, going all the way back before the law with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, but in, during the law, only Levitical priests 
where you had Levitical priests out of all the men of Israel could be approaching God in the tabernacle. But during the church age, uh, male and female, slave and free man, Jew and Gentile can all enter into the presence of the Father uh, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and the baptism of the Spirit. So this is awesome news for us Gentiles. See, we take it for granted because we feel, you know, we the church age has been primarily, during the church age, it's been primarily Gentile believers of the predominant race. Uh, but early on, it was the Jewish believers. And now we still, obviously, we still have a remnant of believers, Jewish believers in the church. And we'll always have a remnant of believing Jews throughout history, including the church age and every generation. And so, uh, we, but we are, we take these things for granted as Gentiles, but we really are, uh, have been blessed. And, uh, you know, as we pointed out, uh, that, um, uh, you know, we read the Romans passage in Romans 11, we're the wild olive branch that contrary to nature, I'm emphasizing the supernatural nature of our union with Jewish believers, uh, we are united to Jewish believers through our faith in Jesus Christ, the justification and the baptism of the Spirit. Now, that's significant because uh, we see that uh, the Jews were given the covenants. And for particular, let's take a look at the New Covenant, which had the stipulations of the gift of the Spirit and uh, the forgiveness of sins. It's uh, mentioned in Ezekiel 36, this uh, particular covenant. And also, of course, the big famous one in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And so uh, the Jewish believers... Uh, were the first during the, on, on the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD with the apostles, they were the they basically were receiving uh, the first fruits of the spirit. They were, the, the the benefits of the new covenant. The first Jews to do so, and then Gentiles entered into that covenant because by being having faith in Jesus, and being placed in union with Him and identified with Him, they were simultaneously also identified with the Jewish believers as well. So we were united and grafted in contrary to nature to the olive branch, olive tree, which is a picture of Israel, as we pointed out. And the branches on the olive tree are regenerate Jews, and those off the tree are unre uh, unregenerate Jews. So the born-again ones are on the tree. And of course, the unregenerate ones can be placed back on that olive tree through faith in Jesus Christ. But you, us, you and I, Gentile believers, are engrafted in contrary to nature. This is not what they did in the natural realm. So Paul says this because he wants to emphasize the supernatural nature and the and profound thing that has just taken place during the church age and continues to happen. So, back to God restoring the human race over the works of his hands. Now, God's in the process uh, of calling out from every language group, ethnicity, country, every race, male, female, Jew and Gentile, slavery free, a bride for his son Jesus Christ who will reign with him over the works of his hands. Remember Ephesians, a book of chapter five, which we're going to study in the future, right? It talks about the fact that we're the bride of Christ. And that was a mystery. Jew and Gentile believers would be uh, and, uh, married to the Lord Jesus Christ, be, constitute his bride that will reign over this earth and dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent. So let's read my translation of chapter two. It says, now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit, we're spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions. In other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of them, by means of these, in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits, Residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically, the Spirit is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, the non-believer, among whom, verse 3, among whom each and every one of us in the Christian community, both Jew and Gentile, 
also formally for our own selfish benefit conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, the sin nature, which is located in the genetic structure of our physical body. Specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh, in other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of God's wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, the imputation of Adam's sin at physical birth. Just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So he's emphasizing in the first three verses of the chapter that, uh, that we're enslaved prior to our justification, that we're enslaved to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system in a bad position, okay? But uh, the grace of God, uh, which God's grace policy towards sinners, that flows from the exercise of the attribute of his love and cause him to be, causes him to be merciful to us sinners, did something. So it says in verse 4, but because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he, the Father, caused each and every one of us in the Christian community to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit is saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. He did this, verse 7, so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace, because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, that word indicates this is a, the next, uh, what he's about to say is an inference from the first 10 verses of the chapter. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly, each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who receive the designation circumcision, with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each and every one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Then he says, each and every one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, promise the Messianic promise, which is the product of the covenants. Then he says, each and every one of you used to not possess an expectation of blessing. Consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So we can see, like the first three verses of the chapter, verse 12 is describing the, pre, uh, the pre-justification, pre-conversion state of the recipients of this letter, the Gentile Christians throughout the Roman province of Asia in the first century. Now, like verse 4 and uh, through 10, we have uh, the blessings that have flowed to us Gentile believers through faith in Christ and our union identification with Him being described in the rest of the chapter. Verse 13, However, because of your faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you, as a corporate unit who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by the means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For He Himself personifies our peace. 
namely by causing both groups, Jew and Gentile, to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused the hostility, and that's between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, verse 15, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity. And the means by which he did this, and this has the figure of metonymy, uh, the uh, prepositional phrase there, uh, and uh, it says, by means of himself, by means of faith in himself, a justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification, this took place. Thus he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two races with God. Verse 16, in other words, that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility, again, between the two races and the two races with God. How did he do this? Same means, by means of faith in himself, a justification, and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit, a justification. You see in your prepositional phrase, in him, and as I've been pointing out through this chapter and pretty much through the whole book up to this point, in him or in Christ or in Christ Jesus contains the figure of metonymy, the preposition, and in that passage is actually causal. Uh, we see it, it's, uh, or it can also be means. We've seen it the last couple of times, depending on the context. So the figure of autonomy is being used, meaning the person of Christ is put for his faith, the believer's faith in him at justification and their union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. So it, goes, it says in verse, again, verse 16, in other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross, consequently he put to death the hostility by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself, and that's through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, verse 17, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, the Gentiles. Likewise, peace to those who are near, the Jews. Verse 18, consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit in the Christian community, both Jew and Gentile believers, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Verse 20, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each and every one of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and identification with him. The whole building, the church, is growing into a holy temple by appropriating, by faith, union identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union identification with Him. All of you, without exception, are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So we see here that uh, the in verse 18 is actually a holy clause, a holy result clause, which presents the result of the previous declarative statement in verse 17. So that's why you see in my translation, I use the English word, consequently, uh, to uh, to convey or express this idea that this holy clause, translated consequently, uh, is uh, in verse uh, 18, is actually presenting a result clause. And that means it's presenting the result of the previous declarative statement in verse 17. Uh, the Net Bible, they have so that. And so uh, 
they even make a given note with BDAG saying this is the consecutive use of the conjunction Hody, not causal that's being used here. That's why they have so that. That conveys the idea of result as well. So uh, we see that the statement uh, which Hody introduces in verse 18 asserts that through the intermediate agency of Jesus Christ himself, both Jewish and Gentile Christians uh, experience by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit access to the presence of the Father. And specifically, Verse 18 asserts that through Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father, both Jewish and Gentile Christians experience uh, access to the presence of God the Father by means of the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. So if you compare the statement in verse 17 with the, verse, the statement in verse 18, a comparison of these two statements indicates that Jesus Christ, through His Spirit-empowered spirit communicators of the Gospel, came and proclaimed peace for the benefit of Jewish and Gentile church-age believers with the result, quote-unquote, through Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, both Jewish and Gentile Christians experience access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of God the Father. So there's a little bit, um, a little bit of an interpretive issue that we need to take a look at. It's not really difficult, but if you look at some of these translations of verse uh, 18, let me just get uh, verse 18 up here for you. So if you look at, uh, I'm going to see, okay, so you take the ESV. Now they interpret Hody as a causal clause, okay? I just want to put you something out because I'm going to say, show you why they're incorrect and the Net Bible's correct to translate it the way they do. The, the ESV translates it with for to begin the verse. For, F-O-R, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's a causal idea that they're, when they use this word for, obviously, right? Well, let's take a look at another translation that does the same thing. Uh, the uh, today, uh, Today's NIV, great translation as well. For, through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And uh, But how, however, uh, we do have the Net Bible, and even the second edition of the Net Bible, uh, how do they render it? As I pointed out before, they ran, render it Hody as so that. So they're telling you in their translation, and this tells you that translations, is, interpretation is involved with translation. But uh, so that, when they use that word so that, the Net Bible, they're telling you that the statement here that it's introducing in verse 18 is a result from the previous uh, statement in verse 17. Okay? So some expositors and translations, many translations, argue that the conjunction Hody in verse 18 is causal which would mean that the statement which it introduces is presenting the reason for the statement in verse 17. So, or the basis, we could say. Now, this would express the idea that Jesus Christ, if they're right, this is what they'd be saying. It would express the idea that Jesus Christ came proclaiming peace for the benefit of the Gentiles and the Jews because, or on the basis of, the personal intermediate agency of Jesus Christ himself, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, experience access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. So uh, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, quite frankly. And uh, a, a great expositors like Harold Honer uh, make this uh, point clear. Some like Thielman, a great expositor as well. He asser asserts that the statement of verse 18 presents the basis for or proof of or the, uh, of the, uh, or the proof of the peace that Christ has proclaimed, has been proclaimed. And this proof comes in the form of the access that Christ is provided to God for both Jews and Gentiles. Let me read that again because I stumbled over it. A great expositor named Frank Thielman, a great uh, uh, commentary on Ephesians, he says this. He says he asserts that the statement of verse 18 presents the basis for or the proof of 
the peace that Christ has been proclaimed. And this proof comes in the form of the access that Christ has provided to God for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, we can reject this particular interpretation, this view, on the basis of the present tense of the verb echo in the verse. Because if you look at the Net Bible, they have uh, uh, access. We both have. So the word have there, echo, it's in the present tense. Okay? So, again, this view can be rejected on the basis of the customary present or state of present tense of the verb echo, which is translated have in your Bibles, which expresses the idea that both Jewish and Gentile Christians are existing in the state of experiencing access to the Father by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So thus, let me ask you this, how could the present access to the Father by both groups be the reason why the Lord through His apostles preached the gospel to them? I repeat, how could the present access, because that's what he's saying, we presently, at the present time, have access to the Father, both Jew and Gentiles. How can that be the reason why the Lord through his apostles preached the gospel to them? In other words, they're already experiencing access to the Father. Thus, why the need to proclaim the gospel to them, which speaks of this peace with each other in both groups with God through faith in his Son at justification and through the baptism in the Spirit of justification. So the verb, uh, eho, in this passage, so we should translate this as the Net Bible says, so that through him we both are having access in one spirit to the Father. Uh, I don't like the Net Bible translating it um, uh, just have. The word echo, it actually means are experiencing. Let me see if these other translations do this. Uh, they might even have it better. Yeah, everybody has have access, okay? The, uh, la, 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 la. Yeah, they only have access. But if you note my translation, and it goes like this, consequently through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us is a corporate unit. We, in other words, namely both groups are experiencing access. So if you look at the Nestle Alan text with me, and I know you don't speak Greek or understand Greek unless you're a pastor or a scholar, uh, you see this word, ehomen, it's in the present tense. Okay? It's a present active indicative third person plural. First person plural. So yeah, omen. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's telling you it's first person plural. And so this is in the present tense. It's not in the past tense or anything like that. It's in the present tense. So that's supporting my interpretation that the causal idea cannot be the correct view. So the verb echo, translated have in your Bibles, it actually means to experience in context. And it means experience a state of condition, indicating that through the personal intermediate agency of Jesus Christ himself, both Jewish and Gentile Christians are, present tense, experiencing access to the Father by means of the omnipotence of the One Spirit. In fact, um, uh, let's see, I think I have, uh, yeah, I think, oh, yeah, of course I do. Uh, my translation, right, okay, I have an expanded translation that's a little bit different than uh, the regular translation I have. Let me show you why, because I bring out the present tense a little bit more. It reflects more of my interpretation than the other translation, which does quite a bit already. But if you look at my translation on the board and my expanded translation, which is going to be available on the website when I posted it, it says, consequently, through himself, each and every one of us is a corporate unit, namely both groups, as an eternal spiritual truth. That's a gnomic present. It's talking about a spiritual axiom. This is true of all the time. Exist in the state of. That's a state of present tense is the way I'm translating. So I get the state of present idea, the verb there, it can also be mean a regular recurring action, but this is talking about a state that we exist in, present state, and it's an eternal spiritual truth. Okay? So 
that's so again consequently through himself each and every one of us in the Christian community as a corporate unit Jew and Gentile both groups as an eternal spiritual truth the gnomic present exist in the state of customary state of present experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the one and only father so that's what I call my expanded translation it's even more expansive than my other translation I just I read from all the time so go back to uh, my notes here on the board so this verb Ehel, and it's in the first person plural form which is uh, rendered in your Bibles we I I do I translate it a little bit differently and uh, I translate it in a not only speaking of the recipients this letter these Gentile Christians as a corporate unit but as individuals each and every one of me in other words each and every one of you in my translations you see it a lot it's emphasizing that there's no exceptions. That's why it's, it has a distributive use, I see. In other words, of course he does. Paul wants everybody in that Christian community to know that it's, this is true of each and every one of them. So it expresses Paul's spirit-inspired concern for each one of the recipients of this letter that they know this fact. Okay, So the referent of this first-person plural form of this verb is both Paul and the recipients of this letter with himself representing the Jewish Gentile, a Jewish Christian community. Thus it specifically refers to both Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. Uh, and again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier in uh, previous studies. You know, there's the, Paul seems to vacillate. You can see it when we read chapter 2. He goes back and forth between you and we, or us and you. Okay, w- Which is it? Well, what he does is when he uses we or us, he's, he being a Jewish Christian, is expressing his solidarity with the recipients of this letter who are Gentile Christians. And then when he uses just you exclusively uh, to the exclusion of the Gen- uh, Jewish Christian community and himself, he's trying to emphasize the grace of God that's flowed uh, to this, the Gentile Christian community. So it depends on, on the context what he's trying to emphasize. So as was the case in Ephesians 2.14 and 16, we have the adjective amphotoroi, which is uh, translated both groups in Ephesians 2.18. And in each of these verses, verse 14, 16, and 18, this word, anphotoroi, it uh, means both groups, and in each of these verses, the reference, who they are, who's this uh, word is referring to, are both Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. And the word for access that we have in verse 18, prosagoge, and this prosagoge means access. It's a really cool word. We see it only three times in the Greek New Testament. Ephesians 2.18 and 3.12, which I actually am just finishing off today, actually. And uh, and then Romans 5.2, a book we studied in great detail a long time ago now, back to the days of Prairie View. Now this word, prosagoge, uh, access, it means, it's a cool word, it means to lead someone into the presence of another. Uh, it, was often, it was often used in... Uh, secular Greek writing of being having an entrance into, into a presence of a king, okay? But we're not talking about a king here. We're talking about God our, as our father, okay? The word father is, is very important here because he's trying to emphasize we have uh, a relationship, an intimate relationship with God who is our, because he's our heavenly father through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone in the baptism of the spirit and regeneration. So this word, access, it means to lead someone into the presence of another, with the assistance of another and with the implication that the person doing the receiving is of higher status and in each instance 
the word denotes access to the presence of the Father. So note, note this word speaks of being brought into a presence of someone who's of higher status than you and I through the, with the assistance of another. So you and I were brought into the presence of a holy God, perfect holiness. He transcends his character, God the Father's character, this is true of the Son and the Spirit, transcends the character of his creatures, both human beings and angels. That's when he says, where he's holy, the word holy is used of God, saying his character transcends those of his, that of his, his uh, creatures, both men and angels. We were brought into the presence of the Father through what Jesus Christ did, through his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. God looks at us as seated with his Son at his right hand. And if that won't change your, transform your prayer life, nothing will. Nothing will. You gotta understand, you gotta think about these things, people, because you and I, we and I don't think of it more enough that I should be doing it more too. And uh, we can never think enough about it and, and meditate upon it and think about the application of in our lives. You know, you don't need you don't need someone as a crutch. You don't need your pastor as a crutch. You don't need you you have a heavenly father that's there for you 24-7. You know, when I get into, you know, I understand when you're a new believer and we all need encouragement and and, and, and help uh, with uh, and advice, godly advice from people in the body of Christ. We're not, you know, the hand can't say to the arm, I have no need of you and stuff like that, right? But there are times I think, you know, believers, uh, they run to other believers. And I've seen it with past people run to the pastor. It's like, you know, why don't you go to your heavenly father like I have to? You know, it's like you got him 24-7. You're never alone. You might feel lonely. Hey, look at I'm single. I don't. I'm not married. Don't have kids. Always wanted to have a wife and kids. Didn't get a wife and kids, and that's the way it is. And yeah, I know about loneliness big time. Okay, especially as a pastor, you're pretty much a lot of times on a, in a lonely place. And uh, and so, but at the end of the time, at the end of the day, I'm always reminding myself, like Jesus said in the upper room discourse. Yet I'm not alone. So I can go to my heavenly Father. Who's the best person who's got the best set of ears to listen to me? And I talk to him. I talk my butt off to him. I'll, I get mad at him. I'll tell him how I feel on no uncircum terms, but I can have confidence and I can talk boldly with him. I mean, I, res he always, I respect him because I'm telling him, I'm going to your presence based upon the merits of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why I say in my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name, I pray for these things. I don't have any merit with you, Father, but your son does. And I'm approaching you as your child based upon the merits of your son and his my union identification with him. So I'm going to talk to God. He's he's my heavenly father. He cares for me. He loves me. He sent his son to the cross for me when I was his enemy. Now that I'm in his family through faith in his son, is he going to freely give me all things? And if God doesn't answer prayer, it's because he's, he's got good reason. Father knows best. So we need to stop fighting our heavenly father and, uh, and trust him. And uh, yes, it's all right to tell him how you feel and you're bothered about something. You're lonely, or you know your your husband's a pain in the rear. Uh, he, he's not, he, or your wife is, or your kids, or your parents, or you know your bosses, or whatever the circumstances are. God is all ears. Go to Him twenty four seven. Run to Him, as the song said in my, that and that song I sang at the beginning. So in all these passages, people, whether it's Romans five twelve or five two. Ephesians 3.12 or Ephesians 2.18. The word for access in the Greek text of Ephesians 2.18, uh, prosegoge, is used in relation to God the Father. Thus the word denotes the sinner being led into the presence of the Father through the intermediate agency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the purpose? In order to experience 
an eternal relationship and the fellowship with our Heavenly Father. So, that's so fascinating, people. The greatest person, greatest being ever want to have a relationship with is God. <laughs> you know, we make so much of celebrities in our in our country. It's, a, it's just really ridiculous, whether it's Taylor Swift or the Beatles or Elvis or Kennedy or Reagan or, you know, Trump or Biden, whatever, you know, personality, color, even in the church. We make so much about human beings, and yet they're here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Um, you know, I remember my, my parents, when they were younger, now they're in their 80s and my mother's got dementia and she's, not, I don't know how much time she's got left and he could go at any time because he's got a bad heart and other things. You know, I remember them when they were all in my age or younger and uh, they'd have get together with their neighbors and now uh, they had so much fun together and everything. And I used to love listening to them. I'd stay, be at the top of the stairs and, and listening to them and laugh because the way they, you know, they were just, you know, being themselves and having a good time and they weren't being parents. They got a break, right? But I'd be sitting at the foot stand and I'd be laughing and stuff. I miss those days listening to that and, uh, and uh, joking with each other and teasing each other and funny and playing games and stuff. It was really fun. Dancing. I just thought that was so cool. But uh, now they're all dying off. You know, they're here today and gone tomorrow. One day I'll be gone too. And I'm heading that way. I'm in the back nine. I'm 62. <laughs> I can, you know, like 62. I can't believe I'm 62. But again, you know, we make so much being, things about human beings and relationships and human relationships, you know. At the end of the day, the most important relationship you'll ever want to have is God's relationship with Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's not a better relationship to have because at the end of the day, you know, you, you and I really, we die alone. You know, I mean, yeah, you can have your family around you when you die. I remember when, you know, uh, my brother Kenny was dying. You know, my brother Jimmy was like, you know, make sure that somebody was there when he, when he went, you know. But, uh, you know, he was a believer, so he, God was with him. And, uh, you know, um, hey, it's, you know, eventually there's going to be a coming time. I don't know how I'll die fast, quick, long, slow, whatever it is. I don't know. And uh, maybe I'll go be a part of the rapture generation. Maybe I'll never die. You know, maybe I'll probably be part of the rapture generation. But if I do, and it's probably likely I will, but um, he, he'll, be, I'll be, he'll be right there with me. You know, he'll never leave me or forsake me. And people will leave you. People will let you down. And people will betray you, but God will never do so. You know, when he says, um, you know, I'll never leave you or forsake you, you know, Hebrews 13, 8, I mean, it's actually more emphatic. I'll never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. And he said that in the context of money. <laughs> Interesting. So the church age believer people, you and I gain permanent access to the presence of the Father for an eternal relationship and fellowship through the Lord Jesus Christ, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. Now, listen carefully. When the Father declared the church-age believer justified through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The omnipotence of the Holy Spirit placed them in union with his son and under his federal headship and identified them with Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, right hand of the Father. Why is it important to be identified with Jesus in these, these things, these events in his life through the baptism of the Spirit? Well, our identification with Christ and his crucifixion, death, and burial is important because the Lord's substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross, where we experience the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't experience the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire, propitiated the Father's holiness that demanded that sin be judged. 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We study the doctrine of propitiation when I was in Massachusetts before we did the book of Jude. And it means that the father was satisfied with his son suffering the wrath of God in our place on the cross. So there's, our sins are not the issue anymore. Now, through the finished work of Christ, the Lord opened the way for the sinner, you and I, to approach God and gain access to the Father. And which access is gained by the sinner through faith in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. Now, the church age believers identification with Jesus and uh, his resurrection is important because it guarantees them a resurrection body which will be minus the old Adamic sin nature. We can't have that going into the presence of God, so we've got to have a resurrection body. Our identification with him in his present session at the right hand of the Father is essential because it seats them positionally at the right hand of the Father. And in a perfective sense, when we receive a resurrection body at the rapture resurrection of the church. So God looks at us as been raised and seated with Christ, even though we're not experiencing it at the time, at this time. We haven't got a resurrection body yet. We're not sitting in the, in the heaven right now at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. Okay? Now, we experience this identification with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, such in the right hand of the Father. We experience it as church age believers when we're experiencing fellowship with God. How do we do that? By appropriating by faith our union and identification with Jesus. And we do that by considering ourselves to be crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with him in the Father's presence at his right hand. So the whole thing about sanctification, uh, we see that um, when we talk about appropriating by faith our identification with Christ and consider ourselves dead to the nature and alive to God, dead to the cosmic system of God, alive to God, raised up, because we died with Christ and we're raised with Christ and seated with Christ. So to have faith means, to appropriate by faith our union identification with Christ means that we have to think and consider ourselves as to be these things. We have to, in other words, we have to adopt the view of ourselves that God has of us. God doesn't look at us according to our sins and transgressions. We've just seen that in the first chapter, the beginning of the chapter. And, but how does he look at us? He looks at us, he looks at his son. And so, so I sinned though. You say, I sinned. I know you sinned. Don't we all? What do you think 1 John 1, 9 is about? Confess your sins. And don't tell me Jesus taught that too. Remember the disciples' prayer? You know, forgive us our sins. <laughs> the knuckleheads out there teaching false doctrine that Christians don't have to confess their sins. Well, they're going to be, they'll be dealt with by the Lord and they, they are being dealt with by the Lord. I know a few of those people, they should stop. They haven't already. Because they're hurting the church, the life of the church, putting people under discipline, not to mention themselves. So, we are in a fantastic position, but now it takes faith. Do you believe, you, are you going to adopt the view God has of you that, okay, that he has of you? Do you going to adopt that view and consider yourself as dead in sin nature and alive to God? Because when you come to the temptation to sin, you got to do that, you know? I'm not going to sin because I've died with Christ. How can a dead man sin? I've died with Christ. I'm raised with Christ. God made me uh, to be a child of God, son of God, seated at his right hand, a ruler, member of the bride of Christ, a member of Christ's body, indwelt by the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And so sin, committing sin, is contrary to who God made me to be and what I am. Okay, and what he did for me at the past, in the past. So, it takes practice, people. So don't get depressed if you, do, 
If you, we all fail in many ways, okay? And so you just got to be persevere. You know, it takes practice. If you want to be a great golfer, you got to put some practice in. If you want to be a great guitar player, a good singer, you got to practice. You want to be a great songwriter, practice. You want to be a good carpenter, you got to practice. You know, uh, you know, we're all gifted. We're all received these blessings. Every single one of the body of Christ. I'm no more blessed than you are. It's just you got the people who get the most out of their work with God put more effort into it. Okay, so just again, go to use your prayer. Go to your go to your go to your your privilege of going to the Father in prayer to help you with this stuff. That's what I do. Okay, because none of us has arrived. So, as we wrap up our study today, the articular uh, form of the noun pater, which means Father in this verse, of course, first refers to the first member of the Trinity. The articular construction of the word indicates that the Father is in a class by himself, indicating that the extreme of a particular class. What does that mean? Well, the article is put there in the Greek text because it indicates the extreme of those who are fathers. Thus, the articular construction of this word indicates that there's only one father worth mentioning as far as you and I are concerned. And this word, pater, father, is the object of the preposition pros, which actually means face-to-face with or in the presence of. Why? Because it functions as a marker of close personal association with the implication of personal intimacy with someone and of an inter- interrelational interrelationship or reciprocal relation. Okay? So therefore, this prepositional phrase in the Greek text, pros, ton, patera, indicates that both Jewish and Gentile Christians are experiencing access to the personal presence of the Father, quote-unquote. How? Through the personal intermediate agency of Jesus Christ and by means of the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. So therefore... And Ephesians 2.18, the noun for access in the Greek text, prosagoge, indicates that because Jewish and Gentile church-age believers have permanent access to his presence in the sense that they, are, that they always possess an eternal relationship with the Father, the most important relationship that a human being could ever want. The word also indicates the continuing availability of this access to the presence of the Father. In other words, it indicates the continued availability approaching the Father for fellowship. This word, access, prosagoge, uh, it, uh, it means access and not simply entrance because the former, access, accurately reflects the meaning of this word because it denotes not only entrance into the presence of the Father, but also the continuing availability of that access to the presence of the Father. So the word in English, access, denotes the ability or permission to approach, enter, speak with, or use, admittance, and is the state or quality of being approachable. If we paraphrase this definition, people, we could say that the believer, you and I, have the present ability and permission at the present time, and always will, to approach our Heavenly Father and enter His presence in order to speak with Him in prayer through the personal, intimate agency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this access was all made possible, again, through our Lord and Savior, and particularly through His crucifixion, death, burial, Resurrection session at the writing of the Father. It was also made possible, people, we can't forget this, through the work of the Spirit. It was made possible also through the, pers- the believer's identification with Christ and these events in his life, these crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection session at the writing of the Father, when the Father declared them justified. So, church age believers, you and I are truly a blessed people. I mean, that, read the first chapter of Ephesians. We did in detail. 
in the prologue, verses 3 to 14. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us. We're in union with Christ. God looks at us as He looks at His Son. Crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Him. We're part of the new humanity. We're going to rule over the works of God's hands in His millennial reign. We're the bride of Christ, members of His body at this present time. When we suffer, Jesus is suffering with us in a sense because we're the members of His body. If your, if your arm gets whacked by something, right? Doesn't it refer, or bother your head? You get a headache? Yes. So Jesus is identifying with our suffering. He understands us. He's indwelling us. He's with you. He's for you, not against you. If he did all these things for us when we were his enemies, and he did. Remember Ephesians 2? Uh, we were dead in our sins and transgressions, enslaved to sin and Satan's cosmic system. But now we're saved by grace through faith. And we're, uh, he made us alive together with Christ. And he also identified us with Christ in his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. We got everything going for us. So why aren't we happy more? How can believers, you know, are, you know, shuffling their feet and all shucks and they let their adversities overcome them? We all go through that. We need to get better and practice rejoicing and look at the big picture. The reality is that these these little trials and tribulations that we have are going to produce in us are producing in us are just a momentary light affliction, producing in us an eternal way to glory. They're all, nothing, though these things, the whole world and the devil could be waging war at us, and they are. But we got the victory. We're, over, we're more than conquerors. We're, great, we're in a better position. You, you're, you as a believer, you, you know, some people think, oh, if only I was rich, had a rich father, and only if I had a big bank account, and if only I had all the money of uh, Bill Gates and uh, whether it was the guy who runs the Amazon. Oh, if only, if only, if only. And if I had the power of the presidency, or if I was king, you know, you know, you, you'd want to be what you are. <laughs> you want to be who you are in Christ. You already, the world doesn't know what we're really going to be like. When we come back with Christ, the curse, the curse is lifted when we come back with Christ. And Paul says in Romans that the creation groans until we appear with Jesus at the second advent to lift the curse and reign over this earth for a thousand years. We're more powerful than the enemy, Satan, an invisible enemy, because we're dwelt with the Trinity. We got the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. They can't stand against that. So God wants you to understand this and, and, and rejoice. And yeah, we're going to go through stuff. Jesus did. We're not greater than Him, right? Uh, so, so it's going to be gone before you know it. Like I said before, we're here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> this too shall pass, right? And then we have a we have a tremendous future. So, Rejoice as you deal with your trials and tribulations. Look at what God has done for you in the past when you're His enemy and through the work of the Son and the Spirit, what He's going to do for us in the future and what He's doing for us now. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing and an encouragement to your people. Rebuke if necessary. Exhort them to further growth spiritually and to appropriate by faith their union identification with Christ and help them to meditate upon what they've heard today. I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through your people and ultimately bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and providing your people with the necessary spiritual nourishment. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.